0: What do we know about the connection between neurodivergence and eating disorders? How can we better support people who are neurodivergent? This is the BodyWise Podcast. Welcome to our podcast, Anna. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you so much for having me today, Barry. So maybe I'll start off with talking about Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia. We are a very small, very new, not-for-profit. We have a, a board that is made up of all neurodivergent folks. We have various presentations of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, etc. And we all have lived or living experience of an eating disorder. We, so Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia, we call ourselves EDNA for short. I guess, Edna, we're really aiming to bring that neurodivergent lived experience into advocacy work around how do we really push forward the work that is happening and the support that are available for people who are neurodivergent who and who are living with an eating disorder and for all of the people that are involved in supporting that person. And I guess this really emerged. Because we saw that this is a very much underserved community with this overlap between neurodivergence and eating disorders. And so we're really just looking to create some advocacy, push forward with a more affirming approach to research and support for neurodivergent folks. Yeah, just really trying to raise awareness and, and create some change. And But we're very, very small and we're very new. It's just very exciting at this point in time just to, I guess, be getting ourselves out there and trying to create agitate for some change. A little bit about me. I am a dietitian by training. And so the reason why I got into studying nutrition and dietetics was because I actually had an eating disorder but didn't know it. And it was my training that helped me realize that I had an eating disorder. But at the time, I guess my eating disorder didn't really look like the stereotypical eating disorder. And I didn't feel like, and I guess it's a common refrain, I didn't feel sick enough. And I was also very scared of being highly stigmatized in my profession. So I kind of dissociated from that reality. But I did have enough awareness or insight to know that I couldn't go and work in weight management. So I found myself working in pediatrics. Loved pediatrics, loved infant and child feeding. Really, really enjoyed understanding the relational and I guess psychological and sociological aspects of feeding, feeding families and neurodivergent families found me. I didn't necessarily go out with that aim to work with neurodivergent families, but I ended up doing so and really enjoyed that work and found it really rewarding working with lots of families whose children were experiencing selective eating or I guess what we would now call, well, you know, what used to be called pediatric feeding disorder or would now be classified as ARFID style eating behaviors. Yeah, it was then I had my children and my children, like many late identified um, neurodivergent people. So my children were identified as autistic and ADHD and that led to me then being identified myself. So I'm late identified autistic ADHD -er with some ocd and cptsd so i've got a few uh, a few numbers behind our letters behind me there i guess having that identification really helped me to reflect back on my experience of having an eating disorder i also identify as queer and non-binary and so if i consider my neurodivergence and my my gender and my sexuality and I reflect back through that lens to look at the eating disorder that stayed with me from the ages of 20 through to 32, because I'd never actually sought treatment. <laughs> I I can really see that that was a really big factor in the way that my eating disorder presented. And it was a really big barrier for me actually seeking out care. So that's how I ended up doing what I'm doing now. I had a small private practice for many years, but I've just recently, well, I guess a year ago, started Studying more, researching my PhD, Bond University, and last year I was asked to join Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia as one of the founding board members.
0: Can you explain the terms neurodiversity, neurodivergence, and neurodivergent?
1: Yeah, sure. I can. I'll have a go. And certainly, these you know I often hear them not used in the way that they are intended to be used. And I think that as long as we're all trying to get at the same understanding I, you know i try not to get too hung up on it but I guess neurodiversity it's not like a medical or scientific term it really is a term that was designed to describe the natural variation in neurocognitive functioning that occurs across the human population so it's like natural diversity of the ways in which neurocognitive profiles present in that way it can be kind of related to biodiversity and that's the way I find it easiest to remember. So biodiversity is the same, you know, in a natural world and in terms of species and plants and animals and neurodiversity is talking about the different ways in which a neurocognitive profile can present. And then if we look at neurodivergence, it really is a way of describing the state of being neurodivergent. And so the neurodivergent is really just describing... An individual or a group of individuals whose neurocognitive uh, functioning differs significantly from the typical or dominant neurocognitive functioning that is present in a specific society. I think sometimes people think that neurodivergent is synonymous with being autistic, but there are many more ways to be neurodivergent than simply being autistic. Neurodivergence really captures neurocognitive profiles or functioning that may be described as ADHD or bipolar or schizophrenia, DID, dysgraphia, dyslexia, etc. so there's a range of different I guess neurodivergent presentations. Yeah, so I normally say I'm multiply neurodivergent. So you can say that or you can say I like to say I'm neurodivergent and say and then identify which specific presentations or conditions or I'm talking about, but yes, often you might say I'm multiply neurodivergent, if you're aware that you can identify as having more than one neurodivergent cognitive profiles.
0: There's a a lack of research on the full range of neurodivergences and eating disorders at the moment.
1: Yeah, look, there certainly is. We, we do have, and, and I guess research has been emerging for quite a few years now. I think you know even since the 1980s there was research looking at the overlap between autism and eating disorders or restrictive eating disorders. So it's definitely not a like a brand new uh, realization, but we have seen a very big uptick, I guess, in the interest in this overlap in recent years, which is correlated with more research papers coming out. But certainly, if we look at where that research is taking place and what, what presentations it's taking place in, we're seeing lots of research looking at anorexia nervosa and to a lesser extent, avoid, extent avoidant restrictive food intake disorder (ARFID) with autism. And we're also, there's quite a, well, a fair amount of research that looks at the overlap between ADHD and bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder or in pediatrics they talk about it as a presentation called loss of control of eating um, or disinhibited eating, for example. And so, and that loss of control of eating is really considered a prodrome or like an early kind of form of binge eating disorder. And so we do have like these, I guess, two areas in which there has been more research done looking at the overlap between neurodivergent presentations and specific eating disorders. But we do know from research that that like in autism and in ADHD, there's overrepresented overrepresentation across all eating disorder presentations, not just in restrictive eating disorders, or not just in binge eating disorders for ADHD. And so we need to see more research that really captures the breadth of eating disorder presentations that can occur. But also we need to see research that looks at other forms of neurodivergence, such as intellectual disability or bipolar or Tourette syndrome, dysgraphia, dyslexia, and giftedness, for example. So we do have some, some small amounts of research that do show increased eating disorder prevalence rates in those groups, but we don't have enough. And we certainly don't have a lot of research at all that looks at co-occurring presentations. So, yeah, there's still a lot more work that needs to be done.
0: They were talking about your report, Eating Disorders and Neurodivergence Stepped Care Approach. What's the background to this document? How did you create it and who were the stakeholders?
1: Yeah, great question. So this report came about through my work with Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia, so through EDNA our founder is a person named Annie Crow, and Annie Crow set up Edna and was really played an important role in establishing some connections early on and pushing and advocating for the importance of this intersection to be explored in greater depth. Annie She's still doing lots of advocacy work in this space, but she's no longer um, on the EDNA board. But there was a a connection there with the National Eating Disorders Collaboration, the NEDC here in Australia, and EDNA. And there was like a, we had some meetings. And so Laurence Cobbett, who is now the chair of Eating Disorders Neurodiversity Australia, and myself as deputy chair, we had some meetings with NEDC and they were interested in commissioning us to do a what was initially meant to be quite a short briefing report that kind of just set the scene for why we needed to do and more research and why we needed to be advocating in this space to look at the overlap between eating disorders and neurodivergence. So we were really fortunate that we had some great supporters at the NEDC, so we had Hilary, my gosh, her name is, <laughs> avoiding me, Hillary Smith right now, and Dr. Emma Speel. So they were both really strong supporters of the work that we were doing at Edna. And so they helped us, I guess, get the report up and running. And they were our cheerleaders the whole way. Basically, Laurence and I took the opportunity. Laurence is um, an autistic ADHD and also doing a PhD at the moment. Her PhD is in progress with lived experience of an eating disorder. And so we both took the opportunity to take this briefing report and we actually turned it into something that was a lot bigger than what we had originally intended. And I guess that really does speak to being a neurodivergent academic um, in training. Pretty soon it became quite quite big. So it's on 180 pages now and 80 pages of those are references. But even still, that report, we had to turn it around in less than five months. It involved quite a few sleepless nights because we were doing it as a little passion project on the side of our PhDs and our work and our family lives. But basically we turned it around in five months and even still, we would have preferred, like we really do identify that it still doesn't capture everything. We want to talk more about after we will talk more about PECA we want to talk about different presentations and different ideas so but basically it was just a really great opportunity that was supported by the NEDC for us to kind of get our ideas down on paper bring together different threads of the research and really I guess advocate for some change or, or and also advocate for increased understanding of an affirming approach and what that might look like. This space. I also should mention that so, whilst Laurence and I were co authors on the report, Annie Crow, Edna's founder, did contribute, particularly around information around weight stigma and bias in this space. And we had some, we had three expert reviewers who were provided some really great feedback along the way. So, we had Dr. Randall Long, we had Dr. Deborah Mitchelson, um, and Dr. Alyssa, and I'm forgetting her name, Robert. So, we had some, we had a fair bit of support along the way yeah
0: your document aims to promote discussion reflection collaboration and co-production
1: yeah it does and i guess the idea behind that is i guess like i've already alluded to like there's there has been some increased interest uh, research interest in these areas of in recent years building on you know earlier research but still that research is quite siloed to specific presentations and specific, specific populations. And given that we don't we didn't feel like we've got enough research at the moment to really put out like something that provides strong clinical guidance or um, advice. We really wanted to frame this report as something that brings together research, lived experience experience different perspectives together in the one spot to, I guess, provide a really strong foundation to encourage discussion, to encourage clinicians and other stakeholders, researchers, even people who are caring for a loved one, people who are experiencing um, an eating disorder and uh, who identify as neurodivergent themselves this is going to help, help increase their ability to advocate for themselves. So we really wanted to provide almost like a foundational document that can call for that radical change that we feel like we need to have in this sector to really progress improvements in the outcomes of eating disorder care for our neurodivergent folks to help inform new research directions, new changes in practices, and just to promote discussion and reflection. You know, we were quite nervous putting it out because we, we are asking here for quite a radical departure for some of the more traditional gold standard evidence-based ways of practicing. And so in that way, we wanted to frame it as, you know, let's let's talk about this. This is these perspectives based on this evidence, based on these lived experiences and our understanding from other areas about what affirming research and practice and care looks like. So how can we move forward with this as a discussion point? The step-to-care approach is not something that Edna designed that is something that is has been designed by the National Eating Disorders Corporation here in Australia. It basically is just a model that provides examples of care and treatment services that patients may require over the course of their eating disorder journey. So it basically is seen as a continuum but it's not a linear progression so it's identifying that people may need to step up and step down levels of care, and stages of intervention as they progress on their journey. It really, I guess, is aiming to deliver coordinated evidence-based services that can either increase or decrease in intensity based on an individual's needs at that certain point in time. In that way, we use the step system of care as a way to, I guess, organize or to frame our report so the first part of our report is really around building awareness of the neurodivergent eating, feeding and eating profile and, uh, and I guess, you know, ways of being in the world. And then we, we move on to look at the different um, steps in the, in the stages of care to really identify specific actions or reflection points or considerations each of those stages so moving through like uh, prevention and advocacy and early intervention initial initial response treatment and then into recovery
0: can you describe the principles of neurodiversity affirming care for eating disorders and what we need to consider for research and services
1: Gary that's a massive question (laughs) but I'm gonna I'll I'll have a go Now, forgive me if I missed something here, but because it is, I I guess this is really what our report was trying to convey is the complexity of things that we must consider when we're working in this space in order to be affirming and in order to, to deliver equitable and safe care. I'll have a go at summarizing what neurodiversity affirming care might look like in eating disorders. I'm gonna preface this with saying you know this is an evolving concept and I, I hope that we continue to have discussions on what this looks like because that's the whole aim but I guess where we're at now or where I'm at is that you know, affirming care is really based on a deep understanding, or if we don't yet have that understanding, that is based on a willingness to seek out that understanding of the neurodivergent lived experience. And so that must be at the core. And in doing that, that means we must take on an attitude of epistemic and cultural humility and empathy. So that means that we admit that we don't know everything and we, we can see that other people's experiences are going to provide us with new insights and new ways of knowing that are going to benefit our ability to their needs. And so in that way, I guess therapy has to be neurodivergence informed and take into consideration, you know, the conceptualization of disability as being something that's quite individual and it's relational and it's environmental and that understanding that different people are going to Perceive that differently. Really try and resist, or really subvert, or try and defy. Even I guess the the way things are now is that we have these neuronormative expectations around feeding and eating. And so when I'm talking about neuronormative, I'm talking about you know we have these ideas around a simple example is like sitting at the table and eating dinner together as a family feeding practice as being the gold standard as being ideal but that might not be ideal for someone who's neurodivergent or for a neurodivergent family. And so simply having that as an expectation without challenging it through the neurodivergent lived experience lens would be an example of upholding a neuronormative feeding and eating goal. So we want to be challenging those neuronormative expectations throughout all aspects of our care and support and treatment. Because only then can we really kind of dismantle and rebuild what supportive and affirming care would look like. I think the other thing is that affirming care must really value the importance of helping neurodivergent people move towards having a positive neurodivergent identity, whatever that might mean for them, whether that's involvement in their community or just a deep understanding of their ways of being in the world and addressing ableism and but really helping people to, you know, take to, to take their identity the way that they want to see it and and have that be viewed as a positive thing because we do have some research that does show that when neurodivergent identification is made and the, and the person is supported to take on a positive identity around that, that we do see improvements in quality of life and health and wellbeing outcomes. So I think that's a really core part of it. And I think that, you know, based on all of that, we have to understand, as I said before, that the neurodivergent ways of being in the world, in particular relating to all aspects of mental health and feeding and eating. And so that means we have to understand camouflaging. We have to understand demand avoidance. We have to understand the double empathy problem, monotropism. We need to understand different cognitive styles and different cognitive functions, you know, preference for routine or preference for sameness. Executive functioning differences. We need to think about sensory processing and moving beyond just thinking about sensory processing in terms of you know, taste and texture. We need to think about interoception, alexithymia. How do we understand and perceive and communicate our emotional states? What else we need to think about differences in pain thresholds and how they are communicated or understood? And what is the role of stimming? And gosh, there's so many different things that we need to consider, but they are all important components of actually arriving at the practice of delivering affirming care and support for anyone who's neurodivergent and I think one of the one of the other things and I guess this is an overarching lens that really should apply to all eating disorder care is that it must be trauma informed and it must uphold and respect self-determination and autonomy um, because we know as may be understood by people who have worked in this space or have experienced is that much of the research and, and interventions for autistic or otherwise neurodivergent people have been dehumanizing. They have been oppressive and they have been harmful. So they, those components are really important to bring in to practice of neurodiversity affirming care. I think the second part of your question was really around research. So much of what I've just talked about applies to research as well. The other part of it is that with research, it must be authentically co-produced, and that's from the ground up. And I guess that, I guess I say authentically co-produced is an acknowledgement of the need to move beyond tokenistic representation to have, you know, authentic co-production where neurodivergent people are having a say in actually what is research and how it's carried out and what the outcomes of interest are. And then that way, we can also start to really capture much better than has ever been done before how do we measure harm and that's unintentional harms long-term harms short-term harms so that those are those aspects are important i think in terms of research And I guess one of the other things I didn't mention is, you know, the importance of understanding the overlap between the neurodivergent community and the gender non-conforming and non-heterosexual communities, so um, sexual and gender minority communities. And so therefore, all of our work must be affirming in that way as well.
0: There's a lot of, I suppose, let's call it historic baggage around autism, where the lens is very deficit based and this kind of Extremely. deficit model of, of how autistic people experience the world.
1: Oh, 100%. And, and certainly, you know, as I read through research, for research paper after research paper for my PhD, and, and sometimes it's difficult to read as an autistic person because you're seeing, you know, yourself portrayed in this very negative light that doesn't actually come close to you accurately capturing the lived experience and in that way and I think this is another important thing to identify is that you know my autistic experience is going to be very different to another person's autistic experience and and I guess that's for research we really need to be elevating and seeking out members of the autistic community that may not have the ability the functional language ability or have the same platforms that someone you know like myself uh, is able to to speak and verbally and communicate in that way you know we need to be elevating people with different variances of being autistic or neurodivergent in different ways to get that equal representation
0: i saw last week that so there's an article It's by Emmy Nimbley, and we have her on the podcast last year around sensory processing and autism. And this new article is a call for autism-led research exploring definitions of recovery in autistic individuals with an eating disorder. So that's obviously another big knowledge gap that we don't know much about.
1: Yes, I actually referenced nimbly. Well, Lawrence and I referenced nimbly in, in our paper. Um, Yeah, absolutely. We, like there's so much that we do not know and do not understand. And and even if we look at the, like especially in looking at the adult eating disorder research around restrictive eating disorders and autism, it is all people who are assigned female at birth. So we are missing so much really of of the... Diversity and the complexity of presentations. And so. Yeah, absolutely. Not only in recovery, but in different treatment modalities. There's research emerging that's looking at the overlap between orthorexia nervosa, which isn't even in the DSM-5 as a as a clinical eating disorder, looking at the overlap between orthorexia nervosa, nervosa and autism. And so, yeah, there's just so much that we still need to, to seek out and to, and to do some really phenomenological research. I guess I'm a qualitative researcher at heart, so we really need to be seeking out that, lived experience perspective in order to then be able to inform future research and future I guess development of interventions and support.
0: What can you tell us about early intervention prevention and advocacy?
1: Oh gosh again again this is a it's a really broad question gosh I, it's hard to say but I guess you know I my personal interest area really is in prevention and I think that in Eating disorders generally, like we've still got a lot of work to go into getting better at eating disorder prevention and understanding understanding that. And that is, I guess, amplified when it comes to looking at eating disorder prevention for people who are neurodivergent. I guess in this way, when we're looking at prevention, we're really looking at any kind of activity that's directed towards preventing or reducing the incidence of disordered eating or an eating disorder emerging later later on down the line. When we talk about early intervention, it's it's really looking at, I mean, there are different definitions out there around like the time frame and, and whatnot, but I guess the way I conceptualize it is, you know, how early can we capture the presentation of disordered eating or an eating disorder and intervene in that early stage before I guess, that disordered um, mindset or the behaviors become very much entrenched or uh, have been around for you know, a substantial amount of time. And what we know is that if we can intervene early, some of the research does suggest that we have better outcomes in terms of helping people move towards recovery or their version of recovery, whatever it might be, and reducing, I guess, the harm that they experience along the way. But in terms of looking at eating disorder prevention, targeting neurodivergent folks, we, you know, it's <laughs> there's not much there. <laughs> and I think, you know, my research is really looking at trying to understand what the like for adults, if they look back on their early childhood and adolescent feeding experiences, whether or not they had an eating disorder or not, and also looking at parents' reflections, like how can we actually change what we're the advice that we're giving to be more affirming around early feeding and eating practices and then looking at how does that actually influence you know long term outcomes. If we look at whilst there's not a great body of research on it, there's some research papers that show they're looking at adults that are identified as autistic and they're asking them to reflect back reflect back on their experience of childhood adverse uh, adverse events in childhood or traumatic events in childhood. And there are papers that identify that some of the early life feeding experiences where where sensory differences were disregarded, where autonomy was denied, there was forced feeding, escape extinction, making someone remain within the vicinity of the food, et cetera. Those are actually being reported as being traumatic experiences um, by autistic adults upon reflection. So I think that we need to do a lot more work in this space to get better at preventing and identifying really early What, you know, capturing these disordered eating behaviours and being able to intervene quickly.
0: What treatment considerations and adaptations do we need to consider?
1: Look, I think, you know, I was talking before around what neurodiversity affirming care would look like in eating disorders. So I think everything that I said then applies to whether we're working in prevention, early intervention, initial response or treatment and, and across the various stages of treatment, whether that's um, as an outpatient in the community or you know day programs or as an inpatient, we need to ha- be keeping those considerations around that experience of being neurodivergent, how that impacts eating, taking, taking that trauma-informed lens, being taking information from lived experience and applying it and adapting treatment and certainly there have been i guess attempts to to adapt or to create different ways of treating eating disorders that are considerate of neurodivergent needs so you know being in from over in in the uk you have like the peace pathway over there from chanterias group, and that is specifically looking at adapting eating disorder care for autism and there's, there's some research papers that have come out around that. I I feel like, you you know, it has really good intentions and it considers like the sensory processing needs and some of the communication needs. I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess I can't really speak to the effectiveness of it or, or how it could be translated across all of the different layers or levels of care. There's other modalities that have been ignored, cognitive remediation therapy, and you've got CREST, which is another one. And some of those early papers or recent papers have looked at those different modalities and and have not found that they have been, produced significant changes or, you know, been of great benefit for autistic people. And certainly um, some have found that the autistic participants benefited less. You've got some papers looking at, you know, some of the traditional, uh, I guess, gold standard eating disorder interventions that have found that autistic participants reported benefiting less from those standard interventions. Also, I guess there's been a recent paper that looked at and it wasn't a trial, so it didn't actually put the suggested changes into action, but it did propose some adaptations for family-based treatment approaches or family therapy approaches for treating adolescent anorexia nervosa that you know, it considered some of the potential ways in which that standard treatment modality could be adapted to be more appropriate. But as I said, it hasn't, wasn't actually a trial paper. It was just a proposal. I think it's watched this face really with this. You know, they've got, I think there's lots of space for alternative modalities to be explored, whether that's equine assisted therapy, somatic therapies, psychodynamics, like just so many different approaches, you know, bringing in, I guess, this multidisciplinary input, like OTs, you know, speeches, what are other types of therapists, how can we really be leveraging off all of those insights and that wisdom that other that are held across various disciplines to combine that with a co design lived experience treatment modality. And I think that's where we might really see some really great improvements. But yeah, I don't have a definitive answer for you on that one yet.
0: How about support for recovery for those who identify as neurodivergent?
1: Look, I think in recovery, a tricky one, because everyone thinks about recovery in a different way. And so that means like they might think about how they're going to get there in a different way, what it might be like when they're there. And what it takes to actually maintain that recovery and so i know some people don't actually really like using the term recovery even so i guess what i what i say now is is i'm going to ask listeners to hold that in mind that i do understand that this isn't a concept that really resonates with everyone but I think it's really important to identify that not everyone has that same experience. Not everyone has that same affinity with seeking out recovery or conceptualizes it in the same way. But I guess in, I guess the way I think about it is in terms of services, we're looking at services that are recovery focused. So that might include offering things like peer support or other therapeutic adjuncts that are really aimed at reducing the risk of that person's eating disorder relapsing or their their experience of their quality of life or their health and well-being deteriorating. And also in that it's not only avoiding deterioration or relapse, but but also looking at progressively maintaining wellbeing and potentially improving it. I think that in order to be affirming recovery-based services or focus services, they need to incorporate that deep understanding of the ways in which neurodivergence does influence feeding and eating, and also the broader life experiences of neurodivergent individuals. So it must incorporate that whilst also promoting the importance of that positive neurodivergent identity. And it needs to tailor all of those supports to the individual for where they're at, what their specific needs are. And of course, when we're doing this, we need to be really humble in understanding that we don't have all the knowledge of what's going to be suitable or ideal for any individual that we're working with. I guess my own experience is that I consider myself to be in active recovery. And so in that regard, I don't consider myself to have an active eating disorder. But I do have to approach my recovery on a daily basis and am aware of the ways in which my neurodivergent thinking styles and ways of being in the world create certain vulnerabilities for me that place me at risk of relapse that are going to be different to someone else that maybe has a different way of thinking or a different way of being in the world. And so in that way, I don't, I don't see recovery as an end point that I got there and now I'm just like home and hose, and no dramas. It is active, conscious working at that and being aware of how my neurodivergence and my mental health and everything else impacts my feeding and eating. I think that, I don't know if that answers your question around recovery, but maybe I think as well, if you think about that that positive neurodivergent identity, and I think as part of that, it's really important to consider, you know, that neuroqueering approach, so being very affirming of gender and sexuality, nonconformity or belonging to a minority group and how taking on, being positive in your identity around that or for, for anyone else, how important that is to actually supporting recovery. And I think that it's not well understood at the moment, but, or I guess really practiced widely, but I think it is really important to supporting someone to have the opportunity to, really be self-directed uh, as much as they can be or to have access to the appropriate supports to stay in their version of recovery.
0: I heard about this document through the NEDC newsletter. What are you hopeful for now it's been published?
1: Oh gosh, you know, to, to be honest, it was so busy to actually get it published because It was just quite a push time-wise. So what are we hoping for now? We've just been really overwhelmed with the amount of positive feedback and support that we have had following its release. We were nervous putting it out there. I think I said before, you know, it's asking for a radical rethink. It's putting some, it's asking some big questions. It's putting some big question marks out there around current practices, which can be difficult for all of us to consider and to reflect back on and to really question, hey, has what I've been doing ideal or can it be changed? And so we were a little bit nervous putting it out. So we've really been very much happily surprised at how well it's been received so far. It's been widely shared. We've had some really great support from very well renowned researchers as well in the eating disorder space that have happily promoted it out to their network. So we're really just very happy that at the moment, it seems to be having a great uptake and great When we wrote it, we identified that there's many areas that We needed to cut, we need to cover in more detail. Specifically, we want to take a deeper dive into ARFID and we want to look more and explore more around certain presentations like around intellectual disability and also PICA and rumination and just as well around the co occurrence of different presentations. You know, what now is, you know, hopefully that we will just continue to chip away at putting some more effort into addressing those gaps. But also, we're really looking forward to hearing more discussion and hopefully getting some more feedback or hopefully being told that this work has, I guess, inspired some research that is moving or progressing us towards achieving better outcomes for neurodivergent people who are experiencing eating and eating concerns. Because at the moment, we really need more work and we need more effective support. So. That would be, that's the dream, really. <laughs> if we can hopefully just help progress that in some way, that would be amazing.
0: Finally, then, is there anything else you wish to add?
1: No, I just I just wanted to say thank you for inviting me to come and speak on behalf of Eating and Neurodiversity Australia today for sharing, you know, getting, having the opportunity to share this for the contents of this report. If anyone wants the report, it's free to download. So hopefully you you can pop it in the show notes and people can share it. We're always, uh, Laurence and I from Edna, we're really, really happy to take any feedback on board. We want to hear lived experience accounts. We want to hear ideas. and, And really, we're so open to respectful discussion on this. So please don't be shy. If you have something to say, reach out. We'd love to hear from you. That's really it. We're just excited to see what comes next. And, you know, there's so many great, brilliant minds doing research in this space. And hopefully we're going to see lots of really
0: positive changes. Thank you very much, Anna.
1: You're so welcome. Thanks so much, Barry.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find out more about eating disorders and neurodivergence, a stepped care approach in the episode notes.